Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? It is Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you for another brand spanking new episode and another brand spanking new interview. And I am so excited to bring you today's guest on the show. We have spoken to journalists, we have spoken to broadcasters, we have never spoken to somebody about the marketing side of the Olympic Games until today, because we're about to speak to American Olympic marketing expert and one of the biggest names when it comes to Olympic marketing in the world, Terence Burns. Now, This is such a fascinating chat. If you want to learn a little bit more about not only marketing behind an Olympics, but marketing behind an Olympic bid and a lot of discussion around this. Terence has worked on numerous Olympic bids over the years, successful and unsuccessful. And it's such a fascinating insight into what it takes for a city to win an Olympic Games. And this involves so many different aspects that you probably have never thought about. And Terence really goes into the nitty gritty of this. He's also worked on World Cup bids. He's worked on Asian game bids. He's even worked on bids for sports to be re-included into the Olympic Games, which he talks about at length in this interview to really get into what it takes for a sport to be included in the Olympic Games. This really is one of the most interesting, in-depth and fascinating interviews that we have ever brought you here on Off the Podium. And I know you are going to love every single second of it. So I'm going to shut up and I'm going to hand it over to myself. And you are going to hear right now from Olympic marketing expert, Terence Burns. So excited to be able to welcome our next guest here to Off the Podium. Obviously, we talk to a lot of athletes on this show, learn a lot about their journeys, and we have, of course, in the past branched out a little bit. We've talked to journalists, we've talked to broadcasters to learn a little bit more about their Olympic journey. And today, we're going to cover the marketing side of things for the Olympic Games. Obviously, you can't put on an event like the Olympics without a bit of marketing involved. And uh, next guest has had an esteemed career working on all sides of the marketing spectrum. He's worked for the IOC, he's worked for sponsors, he's worked for other major international sporting events to help them come to fruition and to learn about exactly what he's been involved in, what it takes to market an Olympics, market a bid, everything else in between. We are thrilled to welcome Mr. Terence Burns to Off the Podium today. Terence, first of all, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Now, I've got to ask you one question before we get into all the uh, the great things about your career and how you got involved in everything. Was was the Olympics something as a as a kid that you discovered, got obsessed with? Was this something that you thought I want to go to a compete in? I mean, kind of where did this this desire and this passion for the Olympics start? <laughs> I think as a child uh, at my age, the Olympics were uh, a way you you marked time. At least in America, we had a uh, presidential election every four years and we had the summer and the winter games 
together back in those days in the same year, every four years. And I think my first memory of the Olympic Games was probably when I was 10 in 1968. I remember Jean-Claude Kili in Grenoble. Um, and then my first vivid memory of the games and, and, and how important they were were probably in 72 when I was in ninth grade riding my bicycle to school and we got to school and we heard about the, uh, the Israeli athletes in Munich, the massacre there. Um, I wanted to be a dentist, to be honest with you. I never wow. imagined myself uh, in this business, uh, but I was not good at organic chemistry and uh, was told I had been weeded from the, uh, the future bank of medical professionals uh, while I was in university and undergraduate school, went to business school, Long story short, uh, 15 years at Delta Airlines, and uh, my last three years there, I managed the uh, Delta Airlines sponsorship of the Atlanta Games. And that's when I f really fell in love with the Olympics as an idea and uh, something more than a fan. Um, I was able to understand the brand's values and what they meant to the world, and uh, we we did a good job at Delta. We had a fantastic team of people supporting me and uh, good, good leadership. And uh, the IOC took notice of what we did and um, asked uh, a small group of people. And I was fortunate to be in that group to create a new marketing agency for them in 1996. It's called Meridian. The IOC owned 25% uh, of us and uh, the principals owned the other 75%. And we were the IOC's marketing agency for two cycles from uh, 96 to 2004. I left in 2001, just wanted to go out on my own and be a consultant. And uh, that's been my ride. So um, kind of a secu securitous way to get to the world of sport and specifically get to the Olympics. But it was a decision I made in 1996 to uh, to follow that and to leave Delta. And it's the best decision I ever made. I just enjoy every day waking up and working on this uh, incredible brand. I've got to ask a quick tangent question here, Terrence, because you've kind of uh, opened up a can of worms for me here, which I've always wanted to ask. What makes you want to be a dentist? It's literally one of these professions that I swear I've never <laughs> met someone who said, I want to grow up and be a dentist. You're, you're the first, like, I need to ask, what? why did you want to be a dentist? According to my according to my uh, organic chemistry professor, he told me you want to be a dentist because you don't have the balls to be a doctor, and that's <laughs> about the only that's about the only thing I can remember. Uh, I, I made a twelve on the final uh, in organic chemistry, and I was happy to be in the double digits. To be honest with you, with a twelve out of a hundred, and he gave me a D in the course, and he said it was a gift because you're a nice kid and you've worked really hard. Uh, but you should go to the business school. So that, that's about all I can tell you. Maybe I had a nice dentist as a kid. It was a nice guy. I don't remember why, to be honest with you. And I had very few of the attributes that one needs to be a dentist or, or a doctor. But uh, that was my idea at 18, which was uh, uh, brushed aside at 20 around 2021 20, whenever that was wow wow it's just no disrespect to any dentist listening to the show today i just it's it's not something that i you often come across like i'm gonna grow up and be a dentist um and and good on you yeah. if you do it's it's just i, I wish I, I wish i had a more uh, a, a more reasonable story but i don't and that's the truth but, you know who knows what we want who knows why we want to do what we want to do when we're 18 i think that's a little unfair to ask 
an 18 year old to pick a profession for the rest of his or her life. When it came to that journey working with Delta and kind of switching when you went into the to lead up for Atlanta, what was that period like when it came to to the marketing of the games? I mean, this was 12 years after LA, uh, extremely successful and profitable games. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously Atlanta was very well marketed, very well sort of uh, covered on that angle. I mean, was there, there pressure kind of from that side of things to kind of live up to what LA had done for the Olympics? And, and given the US at that point hadn't hosted an Olympics since LA kind of, you know, living up to everything that that mm-hmm. legacy of those games had. There was intense pressure on on me and our team at Delta. I, I can't speak for the organizing committee, ACOG, although the head of uh, sponsorship for ACOG was a guy named Chris Welton, who eventually became my boss at Meridian and eventually became my business partner at a, uh, for my company, Helios, that I founded in uh, the early 2000s. Um, we had incredible pressure on us. Um, f- think about it this way. Our sponsorship fees in those days were about 30 million to be uh, an ACOG sponsor. So about 20 of that was in BIK, 10 was in cash. And in those days, Delta, as all uh, US carriers were recovering from the first Gulf War, Delta had lost money for the first time in its 60, then 60 year history. So there was immense pressure to make sure this made sense financially, even though we kind of had to do it. Atlanta was Delta's hometown. 24,000 people were employed there, yet we're paying $30 million for an event in a city in which we have 90% of the market share. So we had a very aggressive board of directors. There was a gentleman named Ed Arts, who was the chairman of PNG in those days. And he did not understand airlines. <laughs> he did not understand the Olympics. And he was pretty vociferous every quarter when I had to meet and explain, here's where we are, here's what we're doing, here's what we've spent. So Ben, that, that type of pressure and necessity typically forces you to focus only on the things that matter. So I, what I've seen over the years is new sponsors tend to get confused and tend to try to do everything uh, within their rights and benefits, as opposed to really making the sponsorship fit the existing corporate objectives and strategy. Many new sponsors create a standalone Olympic sponsorship strategy, which sits out there by itself and doesn't have a lot of relevance to the rest of the company, what it's doing. So we we somehow figured out not to do that. I mean, I had a lot of great advisors who, who advised me, external consultants who advised, I had no idea what I was doing, but we tied it to what Delta was trying to do. So we just had three very simple uh, objectives. One was a revenue objective. One was a brand objective. And in those days, brand was a misunderstood word. Uh, it was really more about awareness than anything else. And we all know that awareness is a bit of a hollow void. But in those days, we had to do something. And then the third one I was pretty proud of was an internal employee a strategy. Uh, Delta is a service company. So honest, honestly, like any airline or a bank, uh, your brand ambassadors are the people who interact with the customers, right? So it doesn't matter how slick or cool or nice your advertising campaign is. If you have a bad experience uh, with a reservation agent or a ticketing agent or a gate agent or a flight attendant, that colors your view of that brand. So we decided uh, let's, let's energize our employee base 
uh, by offering incentives, everything from running with the Olympic torch to tchotchkes to attending the games as with the other guests. It was a really fulsome program, uh, we thought. If looking back on it now, almost 30 years later, if I could do it again, I'd probably treble the investment I made in it because the people really make the brand. So that's that. the pressure was amazing from that perspective. Um, we didn't feel any pressure from, from LA, but I'm sure the people at uh, ACOG did. I will say this about games in the United States for your international li- uh, listeners. They tend to be more aggressive and more innovative, not because Americans are different or special or smarter. Uh, it's because they don't, games in the United States get zero federal funding other than the security budget, which you know exploded after 9-11. Um, so Olympic and Paralympic games in the United States are left to their own devices. They have to raise their own money. They have to do it through private sponsorship, through broadcast, through ticketing, through merchandise, et cetera. So right now LA's got to raise two and a half billion US dollars. There's not going to be a magic check coming from the Ministry of Sport, because there is no Ministry of Sport in the United States. There's no cabinet position of sport in the United States. There's no Minister of Sport in the United States. And honestly, the games in the United States tend to be a local city and or regional effort because of the size and scope of the country, uh, the competitive nature of the marketplace. Um, And I'll say this, and I don't want it to be pejorative, but often like the games in LA, it's going to be hard for that to be relevant for people in Tampa or Miami because of the size and the scope of, of the United States and the sport and entertainment options that exist in places like Tampa and Miami and Nashville and New York and, you know, go down the list as opposed, juxtaposed to look at the games we were having, the Paralympic games are having in Tokyo right now and the Olympic games two weeks ago. That's a national effort. That is a national imperative. It doesn't happen like that in the U.S. So typically you see U.S.-based games be very innovative and aggressive in their marketing. Um, and you're going to see that with L.A., no question about it. They're going to do things, uh, I think, and hope that will expand the brand and make engagement with Olympic fans, take it to a whole new level. Which it's something that I weirdly enjoy whenever the U.S. puts in a bid for the Olympics, it, there's just that process of which city's going to, there's a bid for the bid, basically, you know, mm. we've seen that in the past, like sort of what happened with Boston's bid and then kind of that fell through and then LA comes about, but in, in sort of the past 20 or so years, like when New York bid and Chicago bid, like it's just, it's it's entertaining as an outsider to kind of see these cities fight for it because in Australia, it's kind of, okay, well, Melbourne had it, great. Sydney had it, great. Well, it's Brisbane's turn now, so let's put Brisbane up, and it's kind of just a universal decision. So it's just it's a unique way of sort of doing it, but it's weirdly entertaining. Well, well it's a, it may be in, indicative of the hyper-competitive nature. Uh, I, I honestly think the USOC in those days and now the USOPC, there was a process that, that mimicked the IOC's process in many ways, um, certainly when they chose Chicago and they chose New York, uh, Chicago had a great technical bid. Uh, it had a lot of issues with um, the soft side of the bid, frankly, the messaging, the leadership, et cetera. Timing is everything as well, and we know that in the Olympic movement. I did I did work with Boston for a few months. I was uh, my company was tied to a company 
back in 2015, who was doing a lot of political work. And um, to be honest, the pressure was put on me to, to, to work on a U.S. bid uh, that during a time frame that would coincide with the U.S. presidential elections. They didn't really want me working for Rome or Hamburg or, or uh, Paris, or, or they wanted me working for a U.S. bid because the, the company with whom I was tethered was probably going to do a lot of work uh, for one of the U.S. presidential candidates, uh, Hillary Clinton. So I, I really didn't want to work for U.S. bid because I I had seen two two bids in in my bidding career um, fail miserably for a lot of different reasons. I felt that there were some systemic issues with USOC at the time. I spent 20, 30, almost 25 years working outside of the United States. I'd never worked with a client in the US. I've only spent two years in the US in the last 20 something because uh, that's, that's what I do. And those two years were eventually with LA. So the, the, the Boston bid, it was pretty clear when I got involved in April of 15 and it died in July of 15. Uh, it was very clear that uh, they had not covered the bases uh, locally. They had not engineered buy-in with the local constituents, local politicians, uh, the IOC, I, I think the USOC was under pressure to pick a city that wasn't LA because LA had had it a few times before, two times before, I think, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, they chose Boston and Boston could have been a, a beautiful city to host the games because it, it, is, it is a pretty city on the water. Uh, it had a nascent technical bid that uh, they were working on, but for, for whatever reason, for a lot of reasons, it just, it died a, an ugly death. And then I was asked to uh, by my by my colleagues to consider LA, and uh, for the same reason I, I said, look, I just there's the proof point of why I I don't want to work for U.S. bid. You saw what happened to Boston. Well, you know, we really would love for you to talk to uh, Casey Wasserman, who's going to run that bid. And I didn't know Casey personally. I mean, he's in my business. I knew of him, you know, reputationally, but I didn't know him personally. And I did agree to a. I remember it was a Saturday morning call and I said, okay, I have 10 questions for, for him. Phil answer them. Then I might work for him. Mike. So we, we actually had a very good call and he said, fantastic. And here's this and here's this. How much does it cost? I said, it's this. He said, great. No problem. No pushback. He said, let's do it. And I said, well, first, first, uh, you know, I want to meet you because uh, this is a highly Working on an Olympic bid is two years of intense emotional commitment on both sides. I have to believe in the city, fall in love with the city, and become an advocate of that city, or I can't do my job well. And so let's meet before we agree, because I still was just not convinced. So I flew out there and met Casey, and he was charming and funny and in love with his city and genuine and focused on what why he wanted to do it. Um, so I said, okay, so that, that's how that happened. Um, and we purposely then, at least my job amongst many in a bid, my first job is to help them define the reason why. The reason how is not too important anymore, um, especially for LA. They, they have more venues than they needed, mm. unlike 
many bids I've worked on where you had to create a city like Russia in Sochi. Um, so my job is to help them create the brand itself, the proposition, create an architecture, write the key messages, make sure that what we're saying is completely differentiated from the other four cities, yet it is something that the IOC needs, and that's the trick in bidding. It's easy to differentiate the functional differences in these cities. It's even easy to differentiate the emotional value proposition for each of these cities. The trick is, does that emotional <clears throat> differentiation have any relevance to the voters? And you have to understand when you're working on the Olympic bid, I'm not trying to convince 7 billion human beings on the planet to vote for LA. I'm trying to convince 100 IOC members, a majority of them, to vote for LA. And that's a very, very different dynamic. And it's, it's a tough one for cities and mayors to understand that it's not uh, a contest um, for the world. It's a contest within the Olympic movement to answer some very pressing questions. What does the movement need in a potential host city? And how can we best deliver that uh, differentiated from our competitors? So it's, it's, it's a high wire act. There's no net. You don't get a bronze. You don't get a silver. You win or lose. And it's, it's one of the most pure uh, exercises in marketing that a marketer can do because you really do get to create a brand from nothing, an Olympic brand, uh, and you have two years to sell it and you win or lose. So mm. I, that, that was one of the things I loved about bidding was the, com the competitive nature of it and the finality of it that you could move on to another city, another culture, another set of dreamers who frankly uh, would always invigorate me. You know, by the end of a bid, you're tired, you're jaded, you're over it. And then you meet a, a new group of people uh, from a community or a culture who want to interpret the Olympic ideals in their own way. Uh, and it is fantastic and it's intoxicating. And uh, they always rejuvenated me in the most positive ways and reminded me why I'm in this business to begin with. And it's that unique aspect of it too that you're talking about that journey to sort of get the bid up and then get them to win it. But then seven years later in, in the traditional cycle, how it worked, then the games come along and you can be like, well, I was part of that from the beginning and here they are now. Here's the opening ceremony of, of Beijing, Vancouver, you know, and you kind of, you've seen that from the beginning to the, the finished product. It must be a sense of pride to kind of see the games finally start. It, it is. Um, I, I think, I think the lonely, the loneliest profession are, are, are the people who work on bids after a bid wins. Uh, you suddenly become invisible and it doesn't matter anymore. And that's, that's part of it. And I get it and understand it. The organizing committee has a very different objective and mission than a bid committee. Um, bid committees spend two years as dreamers, very emotional, um, uh, it's an exercise in supplication, for lack of a better word, for two years. And then suddenly you get it. And then it becomes um, then it becomes a fairly structured roadmap, which is difficult. You know, you go from 30 employees to 5,000 employees at games time or whatever it is. And um, it's a very different ride. Uh, but the pride, yes, you're correct. And I guess the last 
opportunity I had to experience that soup to nuts experience, uh, feeling was uh, Pyeongchang. I worked on Pyeongchang 2018. I worked on uh, Vancouver 2010 and we defeated Pyeongchang. I worked on Sochi 2014, we p- defeated Pyeongchang. And then they finally hired me in 2009. There was something going on, on there. They thought, bid. well, okay, let's get somebody who's, who's, we're losing all the time. Who's, a, who's the key aspect to that? <laughs> well, they were, you know, they were stuck on a message that had no relevance to the Olympic movement and they were stubborn and wouldn't move off of it. And that was the reunification of the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, which is a it, it, it's a noble cause and it's an important cause geopolitically. Is it a is that a must have for the Olympic movement? Uh, no, and, but it's they were stuck on that emotionally and they wouldn't move off of it. So it really wasn't too hard to to maneuver around their positioning with either Vancouver or Sochi. So when 2018 came around, they I got hired and um, they let me uh, redo it all and. We came up with something called New Horizons, and it was about taking winter sport to Asia. Uh, we could clearly demonstrate that within a two-hour flight of Pyeongchang, there were more people under the age of 30 than in all of Europe. And if you need to grow winter sport in federations, you know, here's back to the question, what's, what's best for the Olympic movement? Federations, they wanted to hear that message. We want to take winter sport to places it's never been, to new markets and new new consumers. In uh, Munich, who was our main competitor, by the way, who had the by far the best technical bid, by far the most winter games perfect bid. But the, the messaging that we had with Pyeongchang was a different message, and it was about growing winter sports. So I got to do that for two years, and it was a, it was a grueling bid. It was in the old, it was the last time they did the bid campaign. We had 11 presentations around the world over a two-year period. And I, one of the things I also do is I write all of the speeches, direct all the design, help work on the, uh, the, the movies, train the speaker. So everything you see on stage in an Olympic bid that I've ever worked on, you know, I controlled it because it's, it's all about staying on message and branding. And um, so we finished it and they won. And then during those games, I was invited back um, and I, I typically go to, to all the games, uh, and I'm fortunate uh, that the IOC always uh, invites me, and, and I go as one of their guests. I mean, I pay my way, but I, I, I go as an IOC credential. But the, um, the, head of the, organ- the head of the bid committee was a gentleman named Y.H. Cho, who's now deceased. Uh, he also owned Korean Airlines and the Hanjin Chai Bowl in, in Korea. And YH and I spent the, the final day of the Pyeongchang games together. And uh, he was very proud of his country and very proud of that bid. And, and it was a very, very special because I, I could tell he was ill. I didn't know exactly what was wrong with him, but it was obvious that he was ill. I didn't realize he didn't have long to live, but we spent the last day together of the Pyeongchang games um, reminiscing about just two years or excuse me, seven years prior to the, the bid itself and, and all the things that we went through and, and uh, it was lovely. So yes, that's that from the, from the beginning of a bid to opening and or closing ceremony, it's quite emotional and, and powerful. And um, sometimes people do remember you and remember uh, <laughs> and remember the, the role you played. And sometimes they don't, it's just the way life is. 
Which, how challenging is that then to go to such diverse cultures in and having to really tap in and using your expertise? Because, you know, you worked on Beijing 2008, Vancouver, Sochi, Pyeongchang, as you mentioned, then LA, outside of the Olympics, you know, World Cups in Russia, uh, the Doha Asian Game. I mean, these are diverse cultures that you've obviously got to tap into that marketing side of things. I mean, how is that to kind of adapt your your skills and abilities to, to such yeah. diverse places on the planet? It's difficult, um, and it may be more difficult for an American than it might be for another nationality. We come with perceptions and baggage sometimes that other <laughs> other nationalities do not. Uh, at the end of the day, they're hiring me for a set of expertise that they don't have. And my job is to w- help them waste as little time as they as possible during a very limited scope of work over a, a specific time frame. And you you have to understand that you're in a different culture that you're their guest. And even though you're right, sometimes you have to couch that being right in a way that's digestible for them. Uh, I will say, interesting, because I've, I've been asked this question a hundred times, but I guess the bid where I had the biggest culture shock and I won't say challenge, but ongoing not struggle either, but adjustments was LA. I had not worked in the United States in many years for a period of time with a US client based in the United States, but always working abroad. So working with a group of Americans for two years was completely different than Koreans or Russians or Qataris or Canadians or Azerbaijanis or, you know, just go down the list, all the places I've worked. Um, Americans, uh, you know, have a very specific way of doing business and going about it. And I think often when I work abroad, um, a lot of cultures are very gracious and hospitable and you are, a ho- you know, you're a guest in their nation and they take that seriously and they treat you um, as a guest. And, and uh, very with great hospi- hospitality and uh, kindness. So I've, I've honestly, I've not struggled in any of these cultures. Um, you know, the first get to know you few months or sometimes a little rocky. Um, I, the Koreans and I had a really hard time at the beginning. They are wonderful people, but they're stubborn and aggressive. And I don't mind that. I like, I like it up front. I like, the conflict to get through it. Uh, I don't like, I don't like passive aggressive stuff and I don't like buried conflict. So the, um, the Koreans, for example, uh, first few months were difficult as hell. Um, They insisted on doing it their way. And I just kept saying your way has lost this thing twice. I, I don't, you know, that to me, that's the only marker. I'm not here to be liked. I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here to help you win Olympic games. And if that's what you want to do, then, here's what I think we should do. And, and more often than not, that works if it's pitched the right way. But uh, I will say this as well. Having that experience, Ben, and working in all of those cultures has been, to me, uh, one of the greatest joys of my life. You know, I've 
got a wonderful wife. I have a wonderful daughter. I have a grandson. And those are life milestones and events that I'm grateful for. And they're beautiful. Uh, nothing compares to those. However, a lot of people uh, have a job that's a job. I have a job that's an absolute joy. And I've never been happier than when I'm on a plane going to somewhere that I've never been before in a language I can't speak with money. I can't even discern what the value is and landing and trying to figure out how the hell to get to the air, you know, to the hotel, excuse me. Um, and I have found that most people around the world will treat you uh, with the respect and dignity that you treat them. Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. We're a co-Canadian-Australian sort of production here on Off the Podium, and, and you worked on the Vancouver bid back in 2010. I mean, anything particular about that bid that sort of stood out working there to kind of to bring the winter games? I mean, the thing that's sort of unique about Canadian bids, it's always, I guess, tainted with Montreal in 1976, but they had Calgary, of course, in 88. I mean, were there any challenges kind of to overcome? And is that something that always kind of stains any legacy that a Canadian city has when they bid for an Olympics based on the whole Montreal 1976 situation? Um, I don't recall that being an issue at all, honestly. Um, They were a great bid to work for. Uh, they were the second Olympic bid that we, that I worked for. I had a, my business partner was a guy in those days, a guy named George Herfler and, and George and I did Beijing right when I left the IOC Beijing 2008 hired us for the last six months to kind of help their international messaging. Uh, and I would say that Beijing 2022 could use that same amount of help right now, but, um, they don't seem to think they need it. Uh, but back, this is 20 years ago. So it was 20 years ago, I started working for, we started working for Vancouver right after Beijing won. Um, you know, they were, A, you know, very familiar for us as Americans and Canadians, yet also similar to the Brits, a wide gulf culturally, even though we share the same language. And with the Canadians, we share the same continent, obviously. So we... We, uh, you know, our, our job is to bring objectivity to it. And sometimes when you're dealing with bid committees, um, all of them, you know, drink their own bathwater or they're, they're stuck in their own vortex and they don't have out. So our job is to come in and say, here's the perception of your bid or your nation or your culture, because we do the research from 70 or 80 people within the Olympic movement. We don't care about the other 7 billion just the people in the movement and the influencers on these IOC members. Here's what the other cities are positioning themselves as. Here's why you're different, why this makes sense. And I remember, vividly remember one of the first meetings we were, and they had a very sophisticated marketing group already there. Nice people, uh, smart people. I mean, it's Vancouver's a great city. I just adore it. And um, they were trying to figure out a tagline. And I remember we, it was George and me and several of their marketing people in a room and PR people. And, um, you know, one of the most enchanting things about that, that city and that bid was, you know, you, you can do the, and they did, you can do the, the ice competitions down in the city on the shore. And then you go to Whistler and you've got the mountain and the skiing and they had that sea to sky highway is what it used to be called. And in those days it was a death trap. You know, it was a very dangerous road and people got hurt on it and killed. 
And we were trying to think what makes you different. There's never been an Olympic. Sochi was the second one, but until then there'd never been an Olympic games where you had that diversity of geography. So we called, we said, let's just make this easy. And George actually got up on a board and I remember him writing. He said, you should call this the sea to sky games. And they're all like, Oh no, you know, that's too kitsch. It's touristy. And I, and we just said, look, our job is to tell you what the perception is from the outside. And it's unique and it's not unique and different to you because you're on that highway every day, but competing against Salzburg and Pyeongchang and I can't remember whoever the hells we were competing against in those, in that bid, but I know it was Salzburg and Pyeongchang for, for sure. This is so different. Uh, so helping them to rally around a very key differentiator that was so interesting to the rest of the world, yet to them sent, seemed uh, unimaginative and, and pedantic, it it worked. And they were the see this guy bid and we, the logo reflected that. It showed, you know, so it was fun doing that type of work. I found the Canadian um, bid uh, very gracious, very hospitable. Uh, I didn't, I, we had no issues with the classic American Canadian friction that sometimes exists. Um, they were just, they just wanted to win a bid and they were, they were, you know, led by great people. Um, and I hope that they, I, I hope that they bid again, you know, Vancouver, there are fewer and fewer cities that can host a, a winter games because of the climate change. So, um, I think they will be, I think they'll come back. You'll see another Vancouver winter games, maybe in your lifetime, not my lifetime, but maybe yours. Well, they're, they're obviously considering 2030 aren't they so they are. it could be you know they only are. a few years away is there a is there a much of a difference when it comes to marketing winter bids and summer bids is, is sort of one more yeah. challenging than the other oh yeah uh the winter bids are much more challenging uh because you you have a, a sub you know there's 206 national olympic committees in the olympic movement right 206 countries in the olympic movement how many of those actually participate in the winter games about yes. 80 or 90 or something, isn't it? It's, it's there you go. Very small. Round yeah. 80. Yeah. Round 80. So the other countries, I don't want to say don't, you know, it's just not, it's not a priority for them the way the summer games are, the teams aren't. So you've got, now all of those na- nationalities are not reflected in IOC membership. As you know, there's, there's not all 206 nationalities, but there are a lot of IOC members who come from countries that, either don't have games or teams participating in the winter Olympic games or, you know, marginally. So, so it's really hard to, if you got 45 minutes to make a final presentation in front of the international Olympic committee to sell, um, you're not going to do that on technical abilities. You're not going to do that on here's how great our mountains are. Here's how great our venues are. Here's how nice this is. You've got to tell a story. And I think that that's one of the things that I learned early on and was able to bring to my niche practice in bidding was the how, the how is irrelevant almost if it's good enough. If you can tell a story that captivates people with people on stage, with passionate emotional stories and positioning, uh, even somebody who's not even remotely interested in the Winter Games will listen to you. And uh, Pyeongchang probably is the best example. 
of one that won. And then Almaty, I did, we competed against Pyeongchang. And to me, that may be the best Olympic final presentation I've ever participated in. And I still hear that from IOC members. It was in Kuala Lumpur in, in 2015. Um, I was told by a very good friend who's a member of the IOC executive board going in and goes, Terrence, you know, you only have 26 votes, my friend, and I'm sorry. I know you're passionate about Kazakhstan, but none of us know what where it is or what it is. And you started too late and blah, blah, blah. I said, give me 45 minutes on stage. Give our team 45 minutes on stage. And we came out of that 45 minutes um, with a virtual tie. Uh, and then, of course, Apparently, the electronic voting system, something was wrong with it, and they voted again, and then we lost by three votes. So, wow. you know, that's how it works. Um, but you, you really can captivate those voters if you have the right message, if you're sincere, if you listen to their needs and understand what buttons to push, to be honest with you. So, yeah, the winter bids are always more difficult just because the lack of relevancy for a lot of the voters, to be honest with you, and a lot of the world. Two-part question. Of all the successful bids that you've worked on, was there one that maybe looking back on day one, you were thinking, mm, this might be a bit of a challenge, I don't know how they're going to get there. And on the flip side, any of the ones that you've worked on that didn't ultimately win, was it maybe the opposite? You thought like, well, these, these guys are in with a great shot and a bit surprised that they ultimately didn't get the games. Hmm. Good question. Uh, the first question has to be Sochi. Um, I worked on uh, Moscow 2012. I, most people don't even know that Moscow bid on the 2012 games that London eventually won. Um, <laughs> that was, and I've said it publicly and I'll keep saying it, that was the worst probably professional experience of my life uh, in the Olympics. Not because of the people or the place. I mean, I'm, I've been in, lived and worked in Russia as early as 1992 with Delta Airlines. So I'm very familiar with it. I've been there over a hundred times. Um, that was a bid that was, interestingly enough, probably a priority for somebody in the Moscow City Sports Department, but not even for the mayor, not even for Putin at the time. And it was reflected as such working there. But I worked my my rear end off for them. Um, and they appreciate Russians are unique. They appreciated that effort. And when we lost, it was in 2005, they said, we know we didn't lose because of you, <laughs> which was nice to hear. I bet that's uh, a nice thing to hear. <laughs> but we want to host the winter. We, we want to host an Olympic game. So we're just going to keep bidding until we win one. So the next list, next one is winter. So we're going to do this place called Sochi. Hell, I didn't even know where Sochi was. <laughs> Don't think anyone and did. It until was in August right? of 2000. <laughs> yeah. August of 2005, I flew to Sochi, met with the mayor, who at that time didn't even know that who I was or, or why I was there. Uh, he asked me to go back to my hotel room. Uh, I could understand a little bit of Russian and what he said was not uh, nice. 
But the translator said, oh, the mayor is so pleased to meet you, Mr. Burns. Thank you for coming. <laughs> and uh, so an hour and a half or so later, I go back. He'd gotten the message from Moscow. Suddenly, it's bear hugs, kisses, vodka. <laughs> uh, and we started planning on that day. I had a gentleman with me named Bob Stiles, who's now deceased. Bob was a technical guy, very smart man, nice man. And we literally sat down that first day with a map of Sochi and said, what is this area? This is American, I can't remember the name, American Skya or something. It, it was a big flat area right on the shore. And Bob said, what if we had the first ever winter Olympic park right there? We get all of the ice stuff right there. And uh, the, it's Russia. So the, ma the mayor says, it's not a problem. Well, what about all of the, what is there? Oh, it's just houses and people. And, and you know, it's Russia. So they moved them. Anyway, uh, that, was a, that was a long shot of long shots. And it was one that I got a fair amount of, uh, of, <laughs> of, of humor and consternation from friends and colleagues in my business about, why are you doing that one? You know, why don't you, you know, work for one of the other cities? And um, I saw it as a challenge, Ben, to be honest with you. And I, I am an, I, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm an Olympic idealist, and I think that the Olympic Games can make a difference. Uh, I'd spent a lot of time in Russia. I thought that Russia was desperately trying to, become a more respected member of the family of nations. That's the whole premise of how we wrote that bid, mimicking a little bit of the Beijing 2008 uh, mythology that we wrote into that bid. Looking back on it, was I right? I don't know, probably not in the short term, to be honest with you. Long term, maybe, who knows? I do know that the games in 1980 in Moscow probably kicked off what eventually became Glasnost and Perestroika uh, in 11, you know, yeah, 11 years later, the Soviet Union falls. Did the Olympics cause it? No. Did having the Olympics there open some of the Soviet people's eyes on uh, the reality of the broader world? I was told by a member of the Russian Duma uh, that he was a volunteer in those games. And he said, uh, we saw foreigners who had better shoes than we did, better clothes than we did, better teeth, better glasses. And we realized maybe we've been lied to. And this guy is a you know, member of the Russian government today. So the, the, the Olympics can make a difference. So the, the Sochi one was really surprising. Um, people think that um, Russia was behind it from the beginning. It, the bid committee, I worked four and a half, five months just with the team of people that I'd hired. And we wrote there in those days, you had a mini bid book and a bid bid book. It's called an application file. And you had to write the mini bid book and then go through a process to see if you made it into the next phase. We wrote the mini bid book. I took architects. I took venue planners. Um, we did everything, designed it in French and English, printed it. Uh, there wasn't a bid committee. I didn't have a contract. I wasn't getting paid, but I trusted the Russians because they told me this will happen. This will happen in Russia. It never happens the way you think it's going to happen. And then when it came time to print the real bid books, you know, that's a 
that's a that's almost a half million dollar expense in those days, printing a thousand coffee table books, et cetera. And we used a US printer and the printer wanted a down payment. And the bid committee didn't have any money. So my my company is called Helios. We wrote a check to the printer. To, we loaned the Russian government money uh, so they could get their bid books printed. So it, it was a long haul. Um, and it was an interesting ride. Um, and certainly geopolitics had a, a great deal to do with their victory. So that was one that that I struggled with. I wanted it to win. And then when it did win, you know, it set up a whole new set of, of challenges with the money that Russia spent, et cetera. And we can see the fallout of that, sadly, today. Which ones did I work on that I wish had won or I think should have won? I, I have to still say a couple. Um, Madrid 2020, I worked on for the last six months of that bid. Uh, for some reason, Spain just cannot win an Olympic Games, uh, summer games since Barcelona. Madrid's bid was Agenda 2020 before Agenda 2020 was cool. Uh, it was a great bid. It's a great city. It's a great sporting nation. Uh, they had over 90% of the venues existed. I mean, it was just a, a great, great bid. Uh, the Spanish were just not able to do the behind-the-scenes politicking as well as other countries do and did, uh, like the Japanese, who won it. And then Almaty, I'm still heartbroken about Almaty. We, we could be going to Almaty, Kazakhstan in February instead mm. of China. Uh, and the Kazakh people are lovely people. And that city, Almaty, is a gym. I mean, it, the, the ski jumping venue is in the city. We learned this recently. We had uh, Robert yeah. Livingston on from GameSpeeds, and he was telling the great story. And I, I was devastated that we don't get to see ski jumping downtown. That would be incredible to watch. Well, if, if you ever have an hour to kill, uh, you can you can watch that final presentation on YouTube. Uh, the IOC has all that stuff. The Almaty 22 presentation in Kuala Lumpur. Um, I had a tagline I created for them called Keeping It Real because we knew everything in the Beijing bid was virtual. It was nothing real. It was all made up. Everything they showed was CGI and and created everything we showed was here's the real mountain here's the real snow uh and the people are just lovely and warm and wonderful uh so the keeping it real tagline i still keep up with all my kazakh friends uh, and we talk a lot you know on social media and they love keeping it real they always sign everything off keep it real tv or whatever uh that that was that you know that was one that was also a bid that we gave that final presentation, I think in July or September, I can't remember to be honest with you, Ben, but we didn't start that bid until the previous December. So we had less than half a year to put an Olympic bid together wow. and you need two years. And a lot of the IOC members said, you know, when we saw that presentation, we were blown away, but we also vote, and this is true. We vote for people we know and for people we've built a rapport and trust as much as anything else up there on the stage, if we know that bid leader, if we know that foreign minister, if we know those athletes, if, they've, if we've seen them and heard from them and develop a, really a level of trust, uh, if, we haven't, if we haven't done that, it's hard to vote for them. And I always say that to new bids, 
no matter how good this bid is, if they don't know you, like you, and trust you, they will not vote for you. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what we do. And and the Kazakhs got started too late. It was very political internally. Um, Kazakhstan is still a young, young country. Uh, there was some consternation about their stability since it's a petro economy, et cetera. Um, I pray and I think that you'll see a winter games in Kazakhstan, though, at some point in Almaty. It's a glorious city, be a perfect city. Fantastic. One, one city that I would like to know if maybe you've been approached to work for or you have worked for, because I kind of feel sorry for them. They just they bid and they lose all the time. Istanbul, what's going on there? I mean, they just they put their hat in the ring every single bloody Olympiad. They just never get the damn games. <laughs> yeah. I have pitched Istanbul. I pitched Istanbul for 2020, and I made the decision to work for Rome instead. And the honest truth is, I had just finished two years with Korea, literally 10 days a month, every month for two years in Korea. And as much as I love Korea and Korean people, it's a very different culture. Any Asian culture is a different culture, very different. And I was exhausted. I was just exhausted after that one. And Rome called me. That happens to be one of my three favorite big cities on the planet, Rome. I love Rome. I love London. And I love Tokyo. Um, I pitched Tokyo too, but um, I don't know what happened with Tokyo, to be honest with you. There were some some consultants already helping them and uh, everything's political. So, I pitched Istanbul. Uh, I liked them. <clears throat> I thought that they needed to have it. I thought the Olympic movement needed to have the games in a, a Muslim predominant country. And um, liked Hassan. I liked the NOC people. I remember it was snowing the day we pitched Istanbul, believe it or not, snowing wow. in Istanbul. And I thought we had a great shot. And, and um, But Rome came after us hard. And I said, this is the truth. Sometimes it's like this, Ben. I said, if I got to spend 10 days every month somewhere for the next two years, I want some good pasta. <laughs> you know, I want to be able to, I want to be able to walk down to the Coliseum <laughs> and just look at it. I, and I yeah. want to walk through, it's, it's true. And I also thought Rome had a fantastic bid and it's a, you know, there's a great sporting nation and they're just so fun and great to be around. Not that the Turks are not. I just thought it'd be easier on me physically and emotionally to do Rome. And then I did it. And then, as you may or may not remember, uh, Berlusconi got thrown out. They brought in Professor Monte. Um, This would be in 2012. February 2012. It's the day we're handing in the application file that we printed. It was beautiful. My tagline for that bid was a time for history, which was Beautiful. And we used all the iconic photography, La Dolce Vita. It was a stunning, still a great little bit book. And uh, it was due to the IOC that day. And as we were delivering it, Professor Monte, the prime minister, new prime minister of Italy for all of two or three weeks, said, oh, and by the way, we're going to kill the Olympic bit. We're not going to do it. Uh, Italy's Ouch. in a mess. We can't afford it. That's true. And then wow. Baku, call, Baku called me. Immediately, would you help us? I said, "Yeah, that lasted six weeks. They got whacked." And then, uh, and then Madrid called me. 
So that was one that I had, I don't know, three or four cities in one bid cycle. Uh, so back to Istanbul, why, you know, I don't know why. I, I think, um, I think it always comes down to personal relationships and a little and more than a little politics in the Olympic movement to win the games. Um, there are geopolitical issues with Turkey, as you know, as it pertains to the EU that may have been at play. Um, you know, good bids, good bids win and good bids lose, et cetera. Uh, I, I think, I think, when it comes down to Istanbul regarding the IOC, uh, it could have been a a function of risk at the end of the day. Um, As it always is. Uh, I remember that final presentation where Istanbul going up against uh, Tokyo. And I was with Madrid and uh, that was in 13. And I remember Tokyo right at the very end because Tokyo couldn't find its voice for the whole two years. And it honestly wasn't even considered a front runner in that bid. You know who was considered a front runner was Istanbul through that entire bid. It was their time, to your point. They had been bidding. They'd been patient. They'd done it again and again and again. They had a good bid. They had a great bid leader, Hassan, a very elegant man, nice man, international man. Um, And The Japanese came up with this tagline right at the very end, a safe pair of hands. And it was at a time where they were having, like that last few months in Istanbul, you may not remember, there were riots in the streets. There was a lot of internal strife going on in Turkey. And uh, the Japanese seized upon that. The political instability, seeming political instability that was going on in the summer of 2013, the spring of 13 in, in Turkey, and they came up with this safe pair of hands. And suddenly everything in their positioning and messaging changed to that. And they hit it right at the right time. And let's be honest, Dinsu was the driving engine behind, <clears throat> excuse me, behind that bid and behind the games. So there was a hell of a lot of money and a hell of a lot of political heft and power and leverage that the Japanese brought brought to bear uh, that they, I think, the Turks didn't really understand that part of the game either. When it comes to what we've just seen earlier this year with Brisbane sort of being selected as the preferred candidate and then get to water the games, how, how does your role even work now if this is kind of how an Olympics is going to be awarded? I mean, does it become redundant? Can you do something a little bit differently? Or is it a case of just seeing how this plays out? Because we're sort of in this phase now where the seven-year period's kind of gone, seemingly, and we, we don't sort of know when the IOC is going to announce a, a bid for Olympics. Yeah, I think it's the best thing that's happened to the Olympic movement in the last 30 years, the change of the bid process. Um, I have written innumerable documents, <laughs> white papers, on what I thought the IOC should be doing in its select host city selection process. I have had those presented in Lausanne. I've had those uh, used by IOC members and or people. Um, And this sounds self-serving and it's not meant to be, but they're doing it. Um, Years ago, my point of view was 
one of the things I got to do when I worked for the IOC, one of my jobs was we sold and serviced all the top sponsor agreements. We were IOC TNS. And my role as the SVP of marketing in that construct was working with sponsors, purely taking care of those relationships, trying to help them and their marketing endeavors, et cetera. And in 1996, when I went to Lausanne for the first time, I said, I've never been a consultant in my life. Don't have any idea what I'm doing. <laughs> May I see your marketing plan? And Michael Payne, who was the marketing director at the time, Michael said, well, Terrence, that's your job. We don't have a marketing plan. You need to write it. And I said, great, I can do that. Let's start with the brand. Let's, let's, let's drill down into the brand and take it apart. Well, what are you talking about? We have a logo. I said, no, I'm not talking about the logo. I'm talking about the brand. Who are you? How do you express it? Why does that matter? That's what a brand is. It's not a logo. Well, it took me a year and a half, 18 months, to convince the executive board of the International Olympic Committee and summarize that they were a brand and that we were dealing with people like Coca-Cola and Visa and IBM, et cetera. And when I go meet their CMOs and they take me through their brand construct and how they bring it to life in marketing, I had nothing. So we did. Global research for the first time ever in 98 and 99, and we positioned that brand. We created marketing materials. We did research in 10 countries, qualitative, quantitative, it had never been done, but it's what every normal real brand does. But for the IOC, it seemed like we were, you know, giving everybody acid. Um, so the brand to me, is why the Olympics are so different from anything else because nothing, nothing else is as universal and compelling as the Olympics. I always tell people, and it, it, it makes people uncomfortable sometimes, depending on the audience. I give a presentation at Olympic brand. I say, how many people think the Olympic brand, the Olympics are about sport? Raise your hand. Well, everybody's hand goes up. I said, well, you're, you're wrong. Give me one hour and I'll ask the question again. I asked, an hour later, I asked the question, nobody raises their hand. Wow. It's, it's, sport happens to be the vehicle that takes us on this path to these universal values that everybody loves and understands, irrespective if you are from Senegal or China or Russia or the United States or Brazil or male, female, young, old. It is astounding, the consistency of what people think about the Olympics. So I began to think as I was in this bid work that the first real step in brand management for the Olympics should be the cities that they choose to host the games. Those cities, those cultures, those nations should mirror or espouse or be able to amplify the Olympic ideal and values. And it shouldn't be a beauty contest with people like me who can go in and, and know how to market and brand and create stories and, and sell something that may or may not be really in the long-term benefit of the Olympic movement. So my suggestion was you should look one to two to three cycles out. You should decide where do you think you should hold the Olympic games and Paralympic games. Now you should ask yourself the questions, look at the, Look at the Olympic Charter and the fundamental principles of the Olympic Charter, which are very clear, 
you should ask yourself the question, where can we best place the games for the benefit of mankind? That doesn't mean, Ben, that they should place the Olympic Games in places that you and I like or that are regarded as ideal Western liberal democracies. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying they should put the games in areas and places that need them, in areas and places that represent less risk to the brand. And these cities can be partners for a longer period of time. So they should be looking 10 years out and areas where they, you want to have the, you know, you want to have the games in a certain part of the world. We'll find cities now, three or four of them, start telling them what they need in 10 or 15 years, help them get there. So when they do bid, if there is a bid, they're ready for it. It's not going to be virtual bullshit. So I, I think what they're doing and the way they did it with Brisbane uh, is exactly the way they should be doing it. Finding cities that are going to benefit all the stakeholders of the Olympic movement, that represent minimal risk, that understand the values of Olympism and, and how that works. And a place, frankly, where the ASEAN will pr be proud to host the games. And I hate to put it so crassly, they're not going to endure a seven-year shit show of bad PR because they chose this place. Hmm. So what does that mean for me? It means that the business I used to have and do is not there anymore. And honestly, I could care less. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm a sponsor person. That's the work I like to do is working with sponsors. I just did a lot of bidding because it, it, it was fun and interesting and I, I could do it well somehow. Um, but I think the IFC's new process is exactly what they should be doing. They may not think of it the way I am articulating it, but it is the very first and most important part of managing their brand is picking host cities and nations, frankly, that they, that where they help each other. Two quick things I'd like to hear about too. Not only have you worked on bids for games themselves, but you've actually worked as a, uh, brand strategists for sports coming back into the Olympics, mm -hmm. golf being included yeah. back into the Olympics and wrestling, of course, which was controversially removed and then kind of brought back in. I mean, what's that like to work on a, a sporting bid to kind of get back into the Olympic Games? Fascinating. Just fascinating. The first one I worked on was golf and I met the guys, <clears throat> Ty Vota, who's with the uh, PGA Tour, um, and uh, Peter, I'm sorry, I can't remember Peter's last name. Um, met him in Beijing in 2008. They were there trying to talk to people to see who could help them with their bid to return to the Olympics. And um, I remember asking, well, why do you want to be in the, why do you want to be in the Olympics? You know, what, I wasn't sure that golf needed to be in the Olympics. And I was wondering why they thought it needed to be in the Olympics. And it is a very different very different uh, dynamic than cities wanting to host the games. Um, so it was fascinating. You know, it's a much more technical process too for there's a lengthy, lengthy set of documents that these hopeful sports have to fill out and, and, uh, and give to the IOC to explain everything. You know, how big is this field of play? Uh, blah, blah. Do you have world championships? Who's in them? What's the gender mix, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's very, very complicated. 
And so, but at the end of the day, it comes down to telling a story. And uh, the golf one was quite, quite interesting. Uh, our final presentation was in Copenhagen on the day that um, Rio won the games. So that was in what, 09? Uh, and, you know, we had, pres- you know, I had Annika Sorensen, Michelle Wee as athlete speakers, Ty spoke, uh, we had videos, we had BJ Singh, and then we- the, last vid- the last person in the video was Tiger. And, you know, the whole room's going, oh, Tiger, Tiger can be in the Olympic Games. It's okay, we're going to vote for golf. You know, and I, I knew that would be a big emotional, we all did, it wasn't just me, yeah. a big and emotional sell. And they got in. And then two weeks later, Tiger's life fell apart. Yeah, just a bit. And two weeks later, that in November of that year, he, he blew up, remember, he Kind of some timing Brandis there around Col- that then that it was like it was two weeks before, not two weeks after. <laughs> that's that's my point. That's my point. Uh, w- would golf have been successful had Tiger blew up? Uh, you, you know, would we have gotten in the Olympics without using him in a video? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, wrestling was much more fascinating. Um, and that was a that was a real example of, of IOC bare knuckle politics at its best. To be honest, the IOC didn't want wrestling out of the Olympic Games. But they had an international federation that was out of control and wouldn't do the bare minimums to stay in because they thought, we're wrestling. You know, we don't have to fill out that paperwork. We don't have to do this. We don't have to do that. We don't have to have transparency. We don't have to follow the new rules that the IOC is trying to do because we're wrestling. They're not going to do anything to us. Well, they did do something to them. Um, and we got involved probably in January, February of 13. Uh, it was a multi, you know, group effort. Um, we talked, I think we talked to Jim Shear here in the States. who was on that trying to save Olympic wrestling. Nanad Lalovich was board member and they put him in charge of the bid and made him interim head of the IF. I don't think he ever thought that would happen. He was just there. Um, eventually became an IOC member, lovely man, articulate, worldly, loved working with that dude. Um, but what we had to do with wrestling was first and foremost, a functional thing. And that was make sure that wrestling did everything it should have been doing technically and administratively to get into IOC's good graces. And uh, Nanad had to restructure the entire federation. He had to change. We also had to make the sport more exciting, change the rules, more television friendly, uh, a lot of functional things. And then to tell the story about wrestling, which wasn't a hard story to tell, to be honest with you. And I had two or three great athletes also speaking, um, you know, wrestling, I always say is it's the one sport that we all know how to do when we come out of a womb, you don't need anybody to teach you how to wrestle. It's endemic to, uh, to the Olympics, one of the ancient foundational sports. So it's a lot of fun to work on it. Um, very different, um, very different way of going about it than a city though much 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 more different i mean you are you're also competing against other sports you know while you're yeah. 
trying to get back into other sports. So um, I loved working on, <clears throat> on both of those. They're both quite different. And wrestling has done an amazing job of turning it around. Um, and I hope, I hope golf can stay in. I, I think it will. But, you know, I think the SEC is entering into a phase where they're, they're looking at the sports program much more critically as they should. I mean, there are sports on the Olympic program that I just don't understand why they're there. And I'm sure you don't either. And other sports are not. Um, so we'll see. We'll see if golf stays in. I wants to stay in at the end of the day, it's going to be up to them. And you know, the commitment that you have to make to the IOC with a, with a sport like golf is that our stars will be there. Mm. We will have the best golfers on the planet playing in the Olympic games. It's, you know, it's, it's the conundrum with ice hockey, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the conundrum with ice hockey. If you don't have the NHL participating, um, it's just a, a different television viewing experience for the average punter out there is watching ice, Olympic which, ice hockey. Which is good to see as of now. They seem to have come up with a bit of an agreement for Beijing, but, I mean, obviously things can uh, change on a dime. Change. So, yeah, exactly. The yeah. other one, I mean, a, a whole episode in itself here, Terence. we could talk about this, but you've worked on a couple of World Cup bids, of course, Russia and the United bid for, for Mexico, Canada and the US in 2026. I mean, you talk about sports being a different kettle of fish to a city. I mean, a country bid is, is something unique and a FIFA World Cup is obviously its own, uh, you know, kettle of fish, its own beast, essentially like that. But I mean, what's it like working on a on a World Cup? That that must be a fascinating experience. It's it is it's similar in many ways and obviously different because it's a single sport and it's a national effort as opposed to a city effort. Uh, the Russians uh, brought us in to help them in two thousand eight or nine. I can't remember the date exactly. Uh, <laughs> But I'd worked on, I don't know how many bids. I've helped Russia win six bids. And I remember we went in and they had, their presentation was one slide and my, my company was called Helios. Their slide said, in Helios, we trust. And that's it. Wow. They said, help us do this. So we, we did what we always did. We, we found people who knew a lot about soccer and uh, or football, as you, as you may know it. I actually worked for the Australian soccer association a long time ago we rebranded the australian football federation also rebranded the aru right before yeah. the world cup in 2003 i worked down there um you know i think it's a lot of it's interesting it's a different dynamic in those days the 18 bid versus the 26 bid totally different 18 was russia you got 26 24 26 executive board members of fifa it's a very different darker murky uh process purposely vague so they can do what they want to do. I found the IOC's process much cleaner, more transparent, prescriptive uh, than the 2018 Russia World Cup bid. <laughs> but we did kind of the same playbook. There's so many fascinating things with that bid. Um, the night before our final presentation, live to the world in Zurich in December of 10, I had one female on the speaking. I needed more, but it's all, it was the great opera singer, Mitrepka, female opera singer. Well, it's nine at night, the night before we're going live the next day. She hadn't been to any rehearsals, hadn't read my speech. She's in Torino in a blizzard and can't get to 
Zurich. Wow. So I'm sitting around. By this time, there are a lot of Russians had arrived. Two stories here. One was the deputy prime minister, Shubalov. So I had three speeches written. I had one for Putin, I had one for Medvedev, and I had one for Shubalov. Shubalov walks in the room with this giant circus of Russians, loud, just Russians. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know why I'm here? I said, yeah, I know why you're here. Because your government's not sure you're going to win this. So they sent you. And he says, let me see the speeches. So I gave him the speeches. Classic Russian. These are terrible. I hate it. Not good. You know, we're, we're, we're 12 hours to showtime. We're going to redo everything. I said, no, you're not. You're not going to redo shit. You're not going to touch it. You can't do it. It's impossible. Nothing's impossible for Russians. I said, well, this is, <laughs> this is the way it's going to be. Well, I'm changing my speech. I brought my own speechwriter. I said, well, no, you're not. He said, yes, I am. So while that's going on, I found out the Trepka's not coming. I look at Yelena Esenbaeva. She's two-time gold medalist, three-time world champion, record holder in the, in the pole vault. She's just a machine. Well, she's there. Abramovich is there. You know, they, they brought all the, the glittery, pretty people of Russia for this thing. And she's sitting across from me. I said, Elena, can you speak English? Well, of course I can speak English. I said, you got anything pretty or, or nice that you can wear? Why? I said, because you're my new speaker. She said, you're kidding me. I said, no, let's go downstairs to the bar. It's a three-minute speech. I'll write it for you right now. We go downstairs. And I'll work with her a little bit on it. She loves it. And I said, I want you to do this one part. I want you to look and I want you to say it very slowly. I love the football. And I want it to come from the back of your throat. Really, really sexy. And she got it and she was laughing and we were laughing. But, you know, hell, you're you're performing. So we go back up. And uh, they're all there. Just crazy Russian riot going on. Got them quiet. And. Uh, I said, okay, here's Elena's speech. Dead silence. We hate it. It's terrible. <laughs> she is world champion. She's Olympic champion. That's all she should talk about. I said, no, that's not what we're going to talk about. The audience is this. So in the course of all this craziness, Shuvalov's guy writes him a new speech. Horrific Politburo sounding thing. And he writes her a speech. She's in a tough spot. It's the deputy prime minister of the Russian Federation. So she comes to me and goes, Terence, I hate this speech. I want to give your speech. I said, here's what, Elaine, I'm going to tell you what, what I'm going to do. Tomorrow, uh, all the slides that we've designed are going to support the speech I've written for you. So if you get up there and give his speech, it's, go it's going to be nonsensical. And by the way, once you're live to the world, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah. So the reality is she gave my speech. Russians erupted, went crazy, screaming, crying. Best speech we've ever heard. Unbelievable. She's funny. <laughs> <laughs> She's fantastic. <laughs> so, you know, there are so many stories like that. And here's the great story, the final, the final great story on that, the Russian bit. So we... We all go to this super posh restaurant in the nicest hotel in 
Zurich, which of course the Russians were staying in. They had me in like a holiday in downtown. They're in this castle looking thing and we all go have dinner and there's 30 or 40 of us. I don't know. There's a lot of people. Suddenly right toward the end of dinner, everybody's phones goes off. Everybody except mine, of course, and my team, all the Russians phones are exploding. Well, Putin's about to land in his private jet. So they get up and leave just left. And so the restaurant manager comes over to me and he goes, who's going to pay for this? <laughs> and I, I said, well, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, he, he said, well, you are. I said, okay. Uh, how much is it? It says it's $40,000. Wow. <laughs> I said, well, let's see if America Express really works the way they say it does. Here, here's an Amex card. I gave him an Amex card. It went through. Wow. <laughs> $40,000. So the next morning, I know, I just knew that people might forget that I did that. So the next morning I found the bid leader and I found their finance guy. And the Russians always travel with cash. These credit cards and all, they cash. So in the stairwell of a hotel, he counts out $40,000 to me in $100 bills. <laughs> and to get back in get back in the United States, you can only, you can only have, you have to have less than 10,000 cash yeah. to come in as an American citizen. So I had to give everybody in my team like $9,999. Is your bonus. To get back. <laughs> so one of the guys who will remain nameless, uh, one of my team, external guy, he's connecting through Paris. So I get back to Atlanta and I call him like a week later. I said, dude, can you just go ahead and send me the check? <clears throat> 10 grand, 9,000. He goes, can you give me a couple more weeks? And I said, well, sure. Well, what's going on? He goes, well, I've never had that much money in my pocket. And I went through Paris and I saw this incredible watch and I bought it for my wife. I said, you did what? (laughs) So... Uh, you know, there's so many stories in bidding. It's hilarious. But that's, I just, uh, I just wanted. To, I'm just surprised you didn't go straight to Putin. Putin was in town. Where's my forty thousand dollars? Here's your speech I wrote for you. I want my money. <laughs> uh, you know, Putin. I did write his speech for Sochi. I wrote seventeen speeches, versions of speeches for him. Wow. And then uh, we and we never knew which one he was going to give. He never rehearsed. And then you've got five minutes. We're in Guatemala. It's 2005. He's the last speaker. I didn't have any slides for him because I didn't know what he was going to say. So we just put up a picture of mountains. And by the way, those pictures of those mountains were the Dolomites because we couldn't even get up to where the mountains were in Sochi in those days. So I see members had no idea what they were looking at. It was a Dolomite. And he spoke uh, in uh, Russian, in English, in French. He did a great job. There were probably bits and pieces of my speeches mixed with other pieces of speeches in it. Um, just craziness. You know, once once the green light goes on, you don't really know what's going to happen. You, you, you've planned, you've prayed, you hope that hope the technology works. Uh, you hope that, you know, the teleprompter doesn't break. It's, it is literally uh, high wire act, no net. And they're all different. They're all different. Wow. 
That's absolutely crazy. And just, just quickly then on the, the United bit, I mean, it's exciting. Obviously, the World Cup uh, coming back to the US and obviously Canada and Mexico getting a taste of it too. I mean, that's obviously a groundbreaking bid. First time since 2002 there's been multiple countries hosting it. The first time you've had three countries hosting mm. it. So, I mean, that was a, must have been a very unique one to kind of sell out there. It was, and I, I was late to that bid, honestly. Um, I was brought in, I think, in uh, January of uh, eighteen. And the, uh, the bid was in June or July was our final presentation in, in Moscow. Um, it was a great, great bid, um, very simple bid, frankly, messaging wise. So simple that, you know, I, I was trying, trying to put a different spin on it. Um, but honestly, my role on that was certainly less strategic. They were on the five, five yard line. Uh, when I was, when I joined, I really helped train the speakers more than anything else. We had a speechwriter who was President Obama's former speechwriter who they brought in to do the speeches. Um, lovely person. Uh, and we worked great together. He would allow me to change and modify, you know, because once you get, you can write a speech, but until you see someone give it, you don't quite know how to adapt it to them. Um, I mean, most of my speeches, the final presentation might be version 43 wow. of a speech. And if you do, that for seven people, that's a lot of editing and rewriting. Um, so he, it was, was great. And I, I enjoyed the camaraderie of the other two countries, to your point. It was interesting to see how that worked. Uh, you know, obviously, the U.S. was driving that ship. Uh, 60 of the matches are in the U.S., 10 are in Canada, 10 are in Mexico. But we worked hard, really hard. And it was important for the bid leadership to not make it look like it was an American show to make it look truly uh, tri-national. And I think, I think they did an excellent job of that. We had young athletes speaking, you know, one from Canada, one from Mexico, one from the U S and we were competing against Morocco. So, you know, that safe pair of hands messaging was in there. Obviously the economic boon to the world, global world of global football was in there. In, in many ways, it was an obvious tack to take. And sometimes that's the best way to do it. You don't get too cute. Don't look so hard for the prosaic that you miss the obvious. And sometimes I see bids make that mistake. Um, it was a lot of fun. And I learned a lot. That was an amazing process because it was under Infantino. It was a completely different process than the 18 process. I'll tell you one thing I thought was amazing about it. And I wish the IOC would do. We presented... Morocco presented, then FIFA's evaluation team presented their findings of the two bids. They tried to be not too heavy handed about how risky Morocco was and how unrisky we were, but it was pretty clear that FIFA would prefer to have it in North America for a host of reasons. But they had to be careful not to insult the Moroccans in their bid because they're good people and nice people. And then Infantino says, okay, in uh, one minute, we're going to start voting. Everybody's name is going to be up on the board, and we're going to see who you vote for. Wow. That was, uh, as an old bid person, old being time bidding and also age, I guess, but as a, as a bid veteran, to see that type of transparency put on the voters themselves was breathtaking, refreshing, and stunning. Um, because you saw who voted for whom 
And it was clear that if there's any hanky panky going on, it would show up on that screen. And I, I applauded, I applauded Infantino for trying to bring FIFA from what it was back in the, back in the old days to the new days. Is he there yet? I don't know. I don't know enough about it, but I think he's made a lot of progress. And I think the IOC, it'll be a long time before you see that, but um, they don't have to do it anymore. Cause now, as we referred to earlier, it's the executive board, frankly, making the decision on Brisbane. And then the IOC members just vote to rubber stamp it or not. So in many ways, they've taken that whole decision out of the IOC members hands got to ask a question mainly because i know the answer already because you told me off air and i just want you to talk about it uh what's your favorite olympics that you've ever been to favorite games for me were sydney uh 2000 i was uh that was my first summer games as an ioc employee my first games as an ioc employee were, were nagano i enjoyed those too i love i love japanese culture and i like the country admire it greatly but sydney man uh, number one, I remember my first trip to Sydney and I had lunch with uh, some of the key people of the city. I don't even remember who they were, but they were, I could tell they were the hoity toities of Sydney and uh, they had something to do with the, the organizing committee. And many of them had been helping for years on the bid, et cetera. Lovely people. And we had restaurant we ate at a restaurant on the rocks i don't remember the name of it but you know you can see everything for me it was just astounding and i was the only american they'd ever met that had read the fatal shore by robert hughes which is <laughs> one of my favorite books of all time which is about the founding of australia robert hughes was an aussie and he was a time magazine art critic but a great writer and i think that to still to this day maybe one of the only history books that's ever been on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was wow. called The Fatal Shore. I don't know if you've read it, but this is the mid mid 90s, 96 when I went down there. So I was able to talk about what I knew about Australian history, which for them to have an American or a septic, as they like to call me, um, <laughs> talk about Australian history and understand it a little bit. It was cool. And I just found them lovely. I love the irreverence of the Australians. I love how they took the piss out of us. They didn't call us the IOC. They called us the OIC, which was hilarious. <laughs> um, they, knew that there, they knew that there was room for humor and irreverence in the Olympic brand better than any organizing committee I've ever seen. Because the IOC sometimes gets in its own way with its pomposity. And it's... If you've ever been to Lausanne and worked there, been there, been in IOC headquarters, it's easy to see how you can, again, start drinking your own bathwater. The Aussies have, would have none of that. I just thought the city was, you could have a, a brick painting contest in, in Sydney and it'd be a great experience just because of the place. It's, it's one of the most gorgeous cities on the planet, how it sits there looking at it. Um, the, the culture of Australia, I loved, and I, I felt an affinity for it as a Southern American, uh, the, uh, you know, the South where I come from, where I lived at the time, Georgia, the state of Georgia was the, was Britain's penal col colony until we got our independence and we got our independence. They started saying all the convicts to Australia. So I had a little bit of 
understanding and affinity with them. There's a great oral tradition in the southern part of the United States. It's very funny. Um, it's a very agrarian part of the United States. It's behind in Traditionally, it's been behind economically and educationally. So this, hell, a lot of people couldn't read. So there was a great oral tradition of humor in the United States. So I found a lot of similarities with Australian slang and how just they were so willing just to take the piss out of anything that oh, yeah. thought it was important. So for a thousand reasons, uh, it, it's, it remains my favorite Olympic Games. And it's because of the people. It, it's that's why and how you remember Olympic games in my experience. It's the people themselves. Um, and believe me, uh, SOCOG had an incredibly hard time with the media leading up to, to the games. You know what the Australian media is like. Very much I mean, so, it's, yes. it, it's, it's, it's full contact sport and they were yep. beaten up months and months and months and years. And then those games happen. And as I told you, this pixie dust comes over the city cabbies are suddenly nice as they can be people on the street believe me i I've, I've been in i've been in bars in sydney when when i open my mouth and they hear my accent sometimes that's not a positive I'll just no. put it that way yeah um <laughs> and sometimes you feel it and uh it's uncomfortable sometimes uh, but all that went away you know at least for 17 days uh so the aussies did a brilliant job it's a great sporting nation which is a cliche punch above their own weight cliche uh, but i love your country and i love being there and i'm often asked by a lot of people you've been all over the world you lived all over the world if you had to move somewhere tomorrow where would you go with the least complaint and i always say australia if somebody said you got to move to sydney tomorrow hell i'd, I'd go in a second you'd be there. love it so i can imagine you, you're, you're booking your flights to brisbane basically for 11 years time you're on that plane be, ready to go <laughs> Oh, you know, if they stay wheelchairs, I'll be too damn old by then. <laughs> it, it, it'll help. It's, it's actually interesting hearing you sort of explain that sort of the connection with the South. I've been to it. I've been to Atlanta a few times, and I love it there. I, I, I've always enjoyed my experiences in Georgia. Southern and, and- Southern Americans are very different from like L.A. Here's how I tell the. Here's how I tell you, because I've worked and lived in, not lived, but worked a lot in New York. Worked a lot, obviously, Atlanta and L.A. When you go to New York, nobody gives a damn about your story. When you go to L.A., all they want to do is tell you their story. Mm-hmm. And if you go down south, they'll sit down with you for hours and say, "Hun, son, tell me about yourself. Who are you people? Where are you from? Tell me yep. your story. Yep. That's, that's a real difference. It's a real geographical difference. Um, the south has its own challenges that we're seeing manifest now even in the COVID and political situations, which are, are are challenging, but the people themselves are slower, more hospitable, more real, more warm. And I think anywhere I've ever been in the world, especially in Europe, the further south you go in the country, the more that people are like that to me. That's why I love working in Mediterranean cultures. Although I, I did work for Stockholm 2026, and I must say, love those people extraordinarily really really fun and rewarding few months that i spent in stockholm i was surprised to be honest with you um i expected something different um which shows you that you can't judge people um but the south yeah it's interesting you say that Uh, i felt a great affinity to australian humor and we're kind of the people that britain didn't want either 
to be honest with you. We're just, we are. Yep. Yep. We're and the I'll say the, the south part in Australia, very true. Further south, come down to Tasmania. And the further you go, we're our own unique yep. people down here too. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It's very fascinating. Terrence, before we let you go, um, plug what you're up to now. People can check out sort of uh, your company's website, anything you want to sort of, you know, put out there. I mean, you don't need any help to promote what you do. That's your job. Uh, and you're on a little kind of podcast right now. It's not going to help you at all. But like for people who maybe want to sort of see more about you and kind of learn about what you do, well, where can people check you out? Well, you know, my company is T-Burn Sports, tburnsports.com. Um, I would go to the section that says what we say. I'm, I, I'm not a prolific writer, but I like to write. I get paid to write. But I, I do a lot of op-ed writing for things like sport business. So you'll find a lot of, of drivel in there that I've, that I've come up with. I, I think that the op-ed about it, I'm 63 years old. I've been doing this for a long time. I know how to do what I know how to do better than I've ever known how to do it. Um, but I'm also a 63-year-old white male in, in the world today. That's not exactly uh, a calling card. Uh, but I've spent you know, almost 30 years going all over the world making a living in the Olympics. And the interesting thing for me is I look out it, over the next decade here in North America. I have a, a tagline. I use the decade of global sport in North America. World Cups here in 26, LA's 28. Not inconceivable that Vancouver and or doubtful, but Salt Lake or some combination thereof. If they were smart, they'd do it together. Um, might be in 2030. So I don't. And I've told you, I've kind of changed gears on bidding anyway. Uh, the Doha bids, the last big one I worked on six or seven months ago. And that was kind of like a triage emergency room crisis last four weeks, changing everything. Um, the bidding process in the world has changed. You know, I, I hope to work on a 2030 World Cup bid. I think I will. Um, but my opportunity and what I know really how to do is from the sponsorship world. And uh, with these great events coming to the States and Canada, Mexico, there are going to be a myriad of brands that need good advice. Not maybe on how to be a sponsor, but how to have a, how to have a strategy uh, within this dynamic. And my point is not, not uh, ambush marketing, but I think any consumer facing brand is going to have to have a football strategy or an Olympic sports strategy around those events. And I can help those people do that in legitimate ways that don't detract from real sponsors and, or what those uh, organizing committees are trying to do, but do it in ways that support athletes at various levels. And then also working with sponsors. Allianz is a client of mine. They're a relatively new IOC top partner. We've been working for them for about two years. And um, it's been really rewarding. I like working with new sponsors because um, they're not really constrained by um, being jaded <laughs> or being cynical or what's been done in the past. They typically... Um, are very open to new ideas and new challenges. So that's, that's, that's what I want to do for the next few years is focus on helping the world cup and LA be as successful, successful as they can be uh, by working on the brand side with as many sponsors as, as I, as I can. Well, I'll tell you one thing, uh, a random fact that uh, listeners of the show will know 
I, uh, back in the day, started a bit of a, a joke mock bid on a former radio show of mine for Hobart to host the Olympics. It went way too far. So if all of a sudden <laughs> this uh, kind of resurfaces itself somewhere out of nowhere, that uh, you'll be the first person I call in if all of a sudden we're like, hey, bugger it, let's, let's Hobart 2036, you know, back-to-back games in it. Australia. <laughs> let's do it. Why not? <laughs> Stranger things have happened, Ben. Yeah, well, this would be the strangest thing probably on planet Earth if that ever came down here. Terence, it has seriously been uh, an absolutely fascinating and interesting chat to learn sort of more about the marketing side of the Olympics, the the, the marketing side of bids and everything else in between. Really have uh, thoroughly enjoyed talking to you on the show today and uh, we're going to keep an eye out for all the great things that you're going to do in the future and uh, how great these games that you've already worked on are going to turn out. Bring on, Bring on LA, bring on 2026 as well for the World Cup. Looking forward to it, Ben, and good luck down there and enjoy the lead up to Brisbane. It's uh, It'll be the ride of your life. Get involved with it um, because the Olympics are a force for good. I believe it with all my heart or I wouldn't be doing this every single day. Massive, massive thanks to Terence there. As I said at the top of the interview, such a fascinating chat, insight into just everything to do with the Olympic marketing side of things. And who would have ever thought that you were going to hear an interview on this show that involved a bunch of Russians leaving to go see Vladimir Putin and then paying a man in $40,000 in cash? That is... uh, an insane story, an absolutely insane story. And I can officially say now that my Kevin Bacon number to Vladimir Putin is one. I have a, a simple step to Mr. Vladimir Putin. So there's something that I never thought I would achieve on this show, and I have uh, just managed to do that. So a big thanks to Terence. Thoroughly fascinating chat there. We have so many more thoroughly fascinating chats to come your way. We've got some great athletes. We've got some great behind-the-scenes people still to come on off the podium as we bring you a myriad of great episodes and interviews in the lead-up to Beijing. And, of course, not only just winter athletes, we've got plenty more summer athletes to come from Tokyo and previous games and other games and events and everything else. We've got so much coming out right now that I don't even know where to begin. So you don't want to miss an episode and you don't have to miss an episode because you can subscribe to the show. Go to all the good podcast platforms, search Off The Podium, hit the subscribe button and while you're there, leave some feedback and a rating. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. And of course, on social media, Off The Podium, search for it on all those different platforms there and you can stay up to date with everything that we are posting and never miss a thing. We love hearing from all of you. It's great all the feedback we're getting to these interviews and as I said we have plenty more to come we're keeping very very busy here at the Off the Podium office and we are going to continue to bring you some great content big thanks again to Terence big thanks to you for listening my name is Ben this has been Off the Podium and we'll speak to you next time good night Turning Japanese up they come Japanese